So here we are after Halloween, and the, um, the room tone here in the Shea Ray is still uh, echoey and roomy. Um, we've tried all different kinds of things. Maybe, maybe try moving to another room. Maybe that, or, or let's just build it into the, uh, the whole concept of the podcast, sort of like the uh, EC Comics, this is the Witch's Dungeon or the uh, Creep Keeper, and just build the uh, roominess uh, into the, uh, the ambiance of the whole thing. I hope everyone had a great uh, Halloween. Uh, nobody came by, bought a lot of candy, uh, very few people came by, but it did go to the Magic Castle on Halloween Day. And uh, they had it all done up to look like, uh, it said a cursed temple, but it was several different types of temples. There was Aztec temples with, you know, human sacrificing going on in them. And uh, there was some Egyptian uh, temple type stuff. And it was very cool. I kind of went a little bit in a costume. I wore a tuxedo and a cape. You know, I was going to wear Robert Quarry's cape from uh, Count Yorga, which he gave to me as a birthday gift many years ago. But, you know, I thought, you know, this is probably a fairly valuable item. I, I don't need somebody spilling a drink on me by accident. <laughs> so, anyway, I, I was I'm trying to figure out what I wanted to talk about today. And um, I was watching this movie the other night. It was called Viva Knievel. It was so bad, it was great. I mean, it was just tremendous. And it had an incredible cast. And it was just so, it was just so... Ah, cliched, over-the-top, soap opera, just full of, you know, just, it was just terrible to the point of being fantastic. And Cameron Mitchell was in it as one of the uh, bad guys. And I was telling somebody about Cameron Mitchell, so I said, eh, let's talk about, let's talk about Cameron Mitchell a little bit today and Jillian Kesner, who, um, the two of them knew each other, but they, they, it's not really about the two of them together. It's just two different things. You know, Cameron Mitchell was one of those guys who was a great actor, and he was in a million things. And I thought sooner or later, you know, in the early part of my career, uh, that we should think about getting him because we were making a uh, movie that was non-screen actors' guilt. It was not a guild movie. Couldn't afford it. So we were looking around uh, for this movie, the movie called The Tomb, and we had originally set up Aldo Ray and uh, Mamie Van Doren. And um, Aldo kind of vanished. He had a tendency to do that. He had some problems, obviously. And Mamie Van Doren, uh, we kind of passed over her because there were some issues there as well. And we replaced her with Kit Natividad, which was a completely different type of cameo, if you know what I mean. Um, but uh, I thought that worked out pretty well. But I wanted to get Cameron Mitchell. And to uh, secure the deal, I had to go visit him. And he lived in uh, Palm Desert, which is right outside of Palm Springs. And he was lived on a golf course. Um, and I went up there and we saw him. And he was a nice guy. And we made the deal. And it all seemed to be great. And he had this lady friend named Hope Holiday who kind of managed him, and um, he was going to do the show, and it was a couple days. He was gone for a few days, and um, he wasn't supposed to show up till noon or something, or 11 a.m., 10 a.m., whatever, but Hope showed up ahead of time, and she said, when Cameron gets here, she goes, he's going to ask for his money, and she said, don't give it to him. She said, you give the money to me. 
and I'll make sure he gets it when I get there, she said. And I said, well, why is that? And she said, well, he has a, a gambling thing where he likes to bet on the horses. And if you give him the money, he'll get on the telephone and he'll bet it all the way on a horse, you know, before the day is over. I said, does he ever win? She said, never. So sure enough, uh, he comes in. First thing he says is, do you have my money? And I said, yes, but I'm not supposed to give it to you. I'm supposed to hold it till... And this is embarrassing, I mean, for me, because it's Cameron Mitchell and it's his money. So I'm in a, kind of a spot. So Hope shows up. And um, I gave Hope uh, the, the money. And he, he descended right on her. You know, give me 50, Hope. Give me $100. Give me, give me, give me $200, whatever it is. And she had the envelope. She was kind of giving him you know, a couple hundred dollar bills here and there. And, uh, and that's kind of how that, that went down. Now, he was an interesting guy. He didn't ad-lib a lot, but he did do a lot of things. He was kind of like Ross Hagen in that way, that he, he would do a lot of things you weren't expecting. And sometimes he would do them while you were filming, which I always didn't like because they're trying to take away your ability to uh, undo it. Because they knew if they did it in a rehearsal, you might tell them not to do it. They did it during a take and you were shooting on short ends and you had limited time and budget. You probably will take that take and use it. And um, he was kind of like that. And you can see in movies like Nightmare on Wax where he's mumbling around all the time. That stuff's not scripted. That's him. That's the way he was. That's kind of the thing that he would bring to it. But he was always very professional looking. And... Um, at the end of the movie, uh, Michelle Bauer like, kills him and turns him into an old guy. Originally, I think in the tomb, he was supposed to be an immortal. He was an immortal as well as Michelle. And that and they were it was almost kind of like Dr. Fives Rises again between Biter Beck and Fives. Um, and Michelle turns him into like a really old guy, which would might be, be his real age or whatever, if that storyline had been expanded upon. And he came up to me and he goes, Fred, he goes, I, I know how you're going to make a million dollars. You're going to make a million dollars if you just do what I said. And I said, well, what is it? What is it? He said, at the end of the movie, you cut to me and I'm the devil and I have horns in my head and I'm laughing. I'm cackling. Ha, 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 ha. And I thought, oh, dear God, no, I don't want to do that. So it came time to make him up as the old age makeup. I told the makeup guys, I said, I want you to put this on as thick and heavy as you possibly can. They said, why? I said, because when you're done putting the makeup on him, I want the idea that he's going to go through another makeup job to go right out of his head. I said, when, when you're done with him, I want, I, I, I want him to not even dream about coming to me later and asking me to put him in this devil makeup. And they kind of did, and it, and it worked. He didn't come back. He was, he was finished with that. He smoked so much. I mean, he, he, he asked if he could smoke as part of his character. And in the movie, The Tomb, you can see he's lighting one cigarette off of another. He's chain-smoking uh, as part of his character. And uh, he was also a big believer in psychic surgery. I mean, he really believed that a guy in the Philippines had just stuck his bare hand into his stomach and operated on him uh, while he was under a trance or something. You know, and I don't challenge people about stuff like that. I just listen. And... Um, he had all these kind of crazy stories about what he was, um, what he was, what he'd been operated on by uh, somebody's hands. Now, a few years later, we decided we wanted to do an anthology 
movie because there were some friends of ours here and there who had short films that were pretty good and they didn't know what to do with them. And I said, I said, listen, why don't we get Cameron Mitchell to come in and and we'll do this sort of wraparound, sort of hosting wraparound sort of thing. And um, so we said, okay, yeah, great. And so we, we hired Cameron and Cameron came over to the house and Michael, Sonny, and uh, there were these scenes and stuff and we shot, we shot till almost three o'clock in the afternoon. And, um, and Bob Tennell, who was helping me with this, his, his girlfriend at the time was a camera assistant who wanted to DP or something. So we said, yeah, okay, all right, it's pretty simple. He's just sitting at a desk, etc." They came in about three o'clock and they said, Fred, can we see in the back room? And I went back there and, and then they told me that she'd been loading the film backwards all day. All day she'd been putting the base toward the lens instead of the emulsion side of the film. So there wasn't anything on it. There might have been an image of some sort, you know, but it wasn't anything that you could use. And we were out of film now. And in the bottom of my uh, refrigerator, down in the vegetable crisper, was one 400-foot roll of a film stop called VNF, Video News Film. And this was a film that usually had a magnetic stripe on the side that you could record an interview. Like if you didn't have a mobile video camera, which, you know, back in the day they didn't, they didn't have field cameras like they have them now. They had these uh, movie cameras, 60-millimeter cameras that would record the sound track right onto the stripe onto the film and you can just do a quick edit and, and put it on the film chain in the TV station and play it. And it had a fairly high ASA, maybe 125, but it was a reversal stock. It was not a, not a negative stock. So I had to go tell Cameron, who thought he was done, that, uh, and we were just, there was no way in 400 feet of film that could we possibly shoot all the stuff with Michael Sonny and everything that we had done up to then. All we could do now is do a bunch of intros and outros, you know, where uh, Cameron would uh, just say, you know, uh, this is Dr. Shock, welcome to my asylum of horrors, the doctor is in. And we just did a bunch of those things just so we have something. And we never knew what to do with the footage. I mean, we had it, we paid him. And uh, so eventually we put the footage into Jacko, uh, Jacko Lantern with some unused uh, John Carradine uh, footage that we had as well. And because uh, we had shot some stuff, Carradine needed a job and we didn't really have anything going on at the time. So kind of like Ed Wood, we said, yeah, okay, come on down and we'll shoot something, you know, because he needed the work. And so I shot a bunch of bits and pieces, including a scene that was supposed to be Frankenstein's brain. And we shot a scene where Carradine is Dr. Frankenstein, slumps over, he's talking to Don Lopsmith, and he slumps over dead. And then he recorded the voiceover for the brain, because I'd seen this in the, like the Wonder Woman, or Wonder Woman, uh, where uh, Carradine's brain was alive and, you know, trying to get Wonder Woman. And so Dr. Frankenstein's brain would be kept alive in an aquarium and it would talk through the speaker. And so Carradine did all the voiceovers and he did that. And we did some other little scene. We thought a guy named Bruce Howland back, I think, was going to make a movie called Cannibal Church. And uh, I said, do you need anything with John Carey? I got him for a day. And uh, we're just shooting bits and pieces of things. And you know, it was a piece of him wearing a hood and looking at a book and just kind of looking up and looking around. Well, needless to say, Hallenbeck never made the movie. The footage from Frankenstein's brain ended up in Evil Spawn. So I ended up with this footage of Carradine in a hood and all these voiceovers for the brain that he'd done. 
So we put those into Jacko as well. And, uh, and then uh, uh, Brink Stevens and I used to go on vacation occasionally together. And um, one time we went to New England and I shot a bunch of footage of her running around a cemetery. Uh, and then acting like something was coming out of a grave and grabbing her and all that stuff. And we had all that. We had that footage. So nothing came of that. So into Jacko that went. So I, I do want to say that there, the, the footage that was in Jacko Lantern had never been used. Had never been used in another movie. It wasn't. It was. A, it was a little Plan Nine, <laughs> a little bit, but uh, the footage had never been seen before. We did not recycle footage of a Carradine camera or a Brink from another movie um, that had appeared anywhere. This was all footage that was being seen for the very first time, and uh, you know, so it worked out okay. <clears throat> and uh, that was kind of the. A bit with Cameron Mitchell. He ended up in Terror Night uh, for uh, Nick Marino and he was his usual sort of ad-libby um, kind of out of control self <laughs> in there but a great actor and, uh, and he was a great person. He was very easy to get along with. Uh, I also thought about Gillian Kessner um, recently and uh, probably because of Moon and Scorpio coming out on Blu-ray. Jillian was uh, Gary Graver's uh, girlfriend, and she had, uh, I knew her from being in a movie, she was in a movie called Firecracker for Roger Corman, and uh, she wasn't the first girl in Firecracker, the first girl they sent to the Philippines, and she refused to take her top off, which was a requirement, so they called Roger and said, we got this problem, this girl's, you know, she's not cooperating, and Roger said, send her back, and he sent her back, and she sued him. She sued him. I don't know if anything came of it. But um, uh, he hired Jillian Kessner, who had no martial arts training whatsoever. And they sent her out, and she did a one-hour class. She told me that she trained for one hour. And Roger told her to stand in the aisles of the airplane on the trip to the Philippines and practice. It would help make the time go faster. So she goes to the Philippines, and she does the movie, and there's some guys doubling her at different points. And amazingly enough, she goes to the Philippines, and they do not shoot the topless scenes. The very scenes the other girl got, got canned over, uh, they, don't, they don't film them. So Jillian comes back to the United States, and they realize they didn't get the, the nude scenes they wanted. So they shot um, <clears throat> a sequence at the Lumberyard down in Venice, if you know the Lumberyard, which was the Corner Studios. And Jillian is being chased by some guys, and every time a guy catches her, he rips a piece of her clothes off, and then she kicks his ass, and then she runs on. And then the guy finally, they finally get her down to nothing but her, her boots and her, her panties. And she's kicking these guys and karate chopping them. And they, they finally manage to get the, uh, the scene, uh, the nudity in the film they want. And I think those scenes might have been directed by a guy I knew named Chuck Moore. And Chuck Moore was my first assistant director on a bunch of uh, movies like Spirits and films like that. But I thought maybe he had directed those uh, scenes. I could be, I could be wrong. But, you know, after that, Jillian sort of became known as like a kung fu expert, even though she wasn't. And she got on Happy Days and uh, she played the Fonz's uh, girlfriend, who was a judo expert. And I think she got on Three's Company where she dated John Ritter and she was a judo expert. And she got in a movie called Roth Force and all this sort of stuff. And I even hired her as a martial arts player in uh, Operation Cobra because 
we were going to go to India anyway, and Gary was the DP, and we could save um, we could save hotel money by Jillian staying in Gary's room, and um, and so we we brought her in there, and you know by then she had actually I think started to learn something. I'm not sure, but she sure looked like she knew what she was doing. And Gary, Gary and Jillian, they didn't marry uh, for the longest time, I think, because Jillian owned the house. She owned the house over on Laurel Terrace, where um, these movies, Trick or Treat and uh, Moon of Scorpio and stuff, were filmed. And I think that she was always afraid that Gary would have a creditor go after her house if they ever got married. So they didn't get married until Gary was literally on his deathbed, and that was so that she could have his uh, truck. He had a grip and electric truck full of equipment and lights and things of that nature. And uh, she married Gary uh, right before he died. And uh, they had a memorial service for Gary. It was like January 15th, following year, a few months after he passed away. And then during the year, we would, uh, we would rent the, the truck from Jillian. And so she would come by and we'd see her by the office and uh, we you know, did business uh, with her. And... She was at, going to the gym all the time, even in India. She was always in the gym, always in the gym. And I said, you know, she was so thin. And I said to her, I said, you know, Jillian, I said, you, you need to put some weight on. I said, you're getting way too thin. She goes, well, you know, it's, it's, I'm at the gym like four days, five days out of the week, you know. And I said, yeah, you, you need to eat more. You need to eat more. And then all of a sudden, uh, she was having lunch with her sister one day, and her heart began racing. And she told her sister, I, you need to take me to a hospital. I think something's wrong. And they took her to the hospital, and it turned out she had leukemia, a type of leukemia that she wasn't even aware of. And in the hospital, she got like a, what they call a staph infection or something. And she passed away in like 24 hours after going to the hospital. I mean, it was almost just like a day, and she was dead. And uh, she was much younger than Gary as well. And... Uh, Ironically, her memorial service was also at the Egyptian theater. It was also on January 15th, exactly one year after Gary's memorial service had been there. It was very, very sad. It was very, very sad. And um, I saw a videotape of uh, my son Tony's first birthday recently, and it, the video was being taken by Gary Graver. And Gary was talking to Tony, and my son Tony took this plate of cake and rubbed it in his face. And Jillian was in there, and she was tickling him, and it was so... Everyone was alive. Bob Quarry was there, and, and uh, Gary and Jillian, and Ross and Claire, and Russ Tamblin and his wife. And every once in a while, you know, you look back on film, and I said, you know, that's probably one of the greatest things about movies, is that you can see your friends, and they're alive again. They're laughing and joking and cutting up and doing what they do. So anyway, that's it for me uh, for this time around. And I hope you enjoyed this. I know it's a little more personal and a little more rambling perhaps. But um, people need to know these things. So long. It's Fred Ray in uh, One Take Territory.